Welcome to the Vell Institute podcast. I'm your humble servant and host, Terry Weaver. Our mission for this podcast is to bring you stories about veterans, entrepreneurs, and leaders who are doing fascinating things with their lives. Our hope is to inspire you because we believe that inspired individuals will change lives, both theirs and others for the good. Bell Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we're asking for your support. There are two ways to do that. One, by getting involved with our mission, and two, by contributing financially. Please visit vellinstitute.org. That's V-E-L institute.org to help us make an impact. Well, I'm excited about our podcast guest today, Deborah Myers. She is the founder and CEO of Infusia, a premium bath products company that manufactures and distributes everything from bath bombs to CBD infused oil. Deborah started Infusia in her kitchen and has built it into a mega success. Infusia's products are sold in major retailers like Kroger, Whole Foods, and fine hotels throughout the country. Deborah is a champion of people, which is probably her greatest quality. She has a mission to hire people who might not have the opportunity to enjoy the dignity of making progress for a company. Deborah is passionate about entrepreneurship and leadership and giving second chances. She is a guest instructor at the University of Houston, and she volunteers as an instructor for the Prison Entrepreneurship Program. She's also a keynote speaker for Vell Institute. What I enjoyed most about getting to know Deborah is how fierce she is. She is fierce and fearless. I hit her with every question that I could, and she is so quick and grounded. She's authentic, and she's unafraid. It, is, it was really neat. I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with founder and extremely talented, passionate, she's a great leader, Deborah Myers. Well, Deborah, thanks for taking time to do this interview. Um, you built a, a nationally distributed product right here in the woodlands and have created a successful business. Sometimes we, we breeze over the, like the early stages, but I know a little bit about yours, so I wanted to start there and just talk about the early stages of Infusia. Well, even though we've been in business for 12 years, in many ways it's the early stages. Okay. Because you're constantly dealing with new struggles and new competitive situations that are much different than maybe the first day, but in many ways it still feels very similar. And what I mean by that is that, for example, right now we have a lot of Chinese imports that we're competing against that we did not have 10 years ago. So we're struggling to compete against them to make sure that our brand is known, that we're made in the United States, that we're handmade, uh, that we're not made by machines and things like that, and, and trying to differentiate those products and, and the kind of the nuances of them is super important. And that is just like when we first started. Because when we first started, we were just trying to establish ourselves as a brand and trying to establish ourselves as a product. And it really doesn't change much because you constantly have new struggles that feel very much like you're just starting out. Everyone thinks, oh, when I get past five years or when I get past 10 years, when I get past 15 years, none of these problems will exist. But the actuality is the more successful you are, the more challenges you face. And in many ways, I long for the days when I just sold at the craft shows. Because when I sold there, Terry, you would come to my table and you would buy a soap or you wouldn't, and it was okay. Now I'm selling to large companies and I have to hope, of course, if hope is a strategy, which I don't think it is, but the the product will sell without me being in front of you. And that is a struggle in itself, because how do you stand out on shelf compared to everybody else? And so those are the nuances that change as your company grows. But at the same time, it's it's a very real first day of school feeling. So let's talk about the early days. Didn't you start in your bedroom or bathroom? Uh, Yeah, I started. We started in my kitchen, actually, and then we moved to the attic. And uh, it wasn't long after that. I mean, enough craft shows and you start getting some traction to figure out exactly how you're going to manufacture the product, how you're going to sell it. 
and we moved into a storage facility that had an office slash storage combination. And then we had one, and then we had two, and then we had three of those. And I told my husband, man, if we could just buy this place. He's like, well, we probably need to think bigger than the storage unit. And uh, then we moved into a real kind of an office slash warehouse facility. And now we're on our third location. And my husband calls me the goldfish. Whatever space we're in, I will grow too. So I'm officially the largest koi you've ever seen. Um, but, you know, we continue to grow, and, and that's whatever space we're in, we're going to grow to that space. And we've outgrown the space we're in even after two years. Now, you started out, you started out humble in your, in your kitchen and mm-hmm. attic. You did that on your spare time, right, because you had a full-time yes, job? Yes, I had a full-time job actually until seven years ago. And, uh, yeah, I would work maybe 50, 60 hours a week at my full-time job. And then I would come and work for Infusia doing that part-time. And my husband also, he had a full-time job. He actually joined the company four years ago, and uh, exactly four years ago. And, you know, he would help me with shipping and packing and this and that. We would always have to be running over to FedEx. You know, the drop-off is 6 o'clock or the drop-off sometimes is 7 o'clock, depending on the location. And we kind of knew where those locations were and the hours that they ran. We also then became friendly with the drivers, and we could hook up with them on their routes. So that was great. Um, but, yeah, we I worked full-time and because it takes tr- a tremendous amount of resources to get a company off the ground. Even after you have sales, it takes just tremendous resources to keep your inventory, your raw goods, you know, um, packaging, and you do have to hire people to get things done. We couldn't do it all. And it, it, it took a tremendous amount of dedication and drive and grit, really, to just not give up. Because really, it was way easier for me to have a very awesome job with a ex- very fancy expense account. Um, and I could do and travel, and it was fantastic. But that wasn't, I don't think, my purpose in life. And I believe that my purpose really has unfolded in the last probably three to four years. And what I mean by that is because we work with so many people who are disadvantaged, that I I believe that God put me in this leadership position to be a home to those people. Because we do work with people, maybe you hadn't graduated high school. Maybe you can't read. Um, maybe you don't speak English. Um, we have a, a lady who's from Mexico who has an MBA in accounting, and but her English is bad, so she can't really get a job. <laughs> and you think, wow, how about we invest in you and send you to some English classes? And she's fantastic. She's got a mind for detail, and she's a very valuable employee to us. So it's just kind of overlooking a lot of what I would think are society's initial walls and looking past that to people's redemption because there's a lot of people with tremendous skill sets that I think are overlooked and we seem to get those folks on our doorstep so it's a it's a it's a blessing and it's a privilege really I think so you said you traded in a very comfortable job with a yes. very expense account yes for a company that, that did you have the vision back then because it's been how long 14 years it's been uh probably a solid 12 years okay. i mean because when you're first starting out you don't know what the heck you're doing and if it's even going to be a real thing but we've been a solid company for 12 years okay so where did the passion come from back in those early days because you yeah the that's a really good question so the passion really came from the fear of failure and the fact that I've not ever failed at anything. So if I said I was going to be the best sales rep, then I'm going to be the best sales rep. And if I'm going to be the best manager, then I'm going to be the best manager. And so making the best soap or the best bath bombs or the best whatever should not be any different than that in my mind. And it became a um, maybe a proving thing to myself that it could be done. But I really had to prove it to my husband also because he was our, he was and continues to be our bank. Uh, he's the one who speaks with our banks now when we need lines of credit and things like that. And really kind of m- making sure that he saw the benefit 
or certainly the return on investment. And I think that that's where the real drive came was that I just knew that it could work. It was just finding the right niche and it was finding the right, I think, buyers. And once I had that, I knew that we could make it work, even though what it is today is much different than when it started out. Because when I started out, I just wanted to sell to Neiman Marcus because that's all I ever knew. You know, when you, when I worked for big, big cosmetics and big fragrance companies, and they, they're all very snooty. And, you know, all you have to do is look at any fashion magazine to know who they're trying to target. It's not the underprivileged or underserved. It's the affluent. So if you grow up in that environment in your young career, you think that this is what it is. And then I quickly learned that there's a whole middle class of people that are underserved and that deserve to be treated fairly and to have quality products, something that they can afford and something they could be proud of. And that's when we really started hitting on something that I believe put us in the direction that we're going now. Okay, a couple more questions or one more on the early passion part. So I understand why you started the company, but why bath bombs, soaps, salts? Because that's what infusion. Yes, that's what we're everything for your bath. Exactly. Well, uh, as I stated, I was in uh, high end fragrance and a lot of people don't realize that there's a tremendous amount of chemicals in fragrance. And I developed very bad um, eczema on my skin, which is not uncommon. And so I really started making products for myself to cure my own ales. I wanted things that smelled great and looked, you know, that felt great, but didn't cost a fortune. And so that's how I actually started making. That's how Infusia started. I mean, it's a female play on infusing things together. Um, so we infuse oils and butters and, and things like those ingredients to make the product. So there was a need in the market that you saw or you... you... I didn't see um, a lot of, at the time, a lot of natural products that were pretty. There's a lot of very uh, natural products that just looked very plain Jane. And I and because of my background, I felt like there was a way to, to do it clean and beautifully at the same time. And that's why the things that we package and all of our products are so pretty. Because even though you're natural, doesn't mean you have to look like some plain crafty made at home. You know, I always say there's a difference between handmade and homemade, and we're not a homemade product. We're a handmade product. And the people that work for us are artisans, and they're very proud of what they do. And there's no reason to put that into a craft bag. (laughs) You know, you can put it into something pretty, and people will appreciate that. So Awesome. So when when I talk to you, I get a sense of uh, determination. And, and I'm going to exceed no matter what the obstacle. You essentially just said that. Yes. Where did that, I think that's the, that's <laughs> the, the underlying, question. underlying did, question. How do you develop that? Where did that come from? Uh, I mean, I think that really a lot of that just came from how I grew up. My dad left when we were very young and I saw my mom really struggle to put food on the table and, and give us a safe environment. And, I think that out of that, I really just, at a young age, decided that that I was going to take a different route than that. I was going to, you know, go to school, get educated, and really be independent. I think that's one of the most grounding and substantial uh, attributes my mom gave both my sister and I is how to be independent. But more importantly is how to think, how to problem solve. And, you know, when your mom or dad aren't, when they're not around, you know, it's like, okay, well, what are you going to do if they're not here? You have to really figure it out. And, you know, nowadays, perhaps kids aren't left alone the way that they used to be. When I was growing up, shoot, man, we just came home when the streetlights came on, right? Um, now it's, you, you ha- you're like constantly tethered to your child. But my mother just taught us how to be independent and how to think. And I think because of the struggles that I saw her go through, I just determined very early in my life, probably five or six years old, that I, that, that was just not going to happen for me. 
And the struggle I have now is not about whether I can put food on the table. The struggle I have now is how can I put food on 40 tables? How can I put food on 50 tables? Because that's how many employees I have. So it's a much different struggle from that that I had growing up. But it's, it's the same feeling of you're just going to make it happen. You're just going to make it happen. Do you remember back in the early days when your mom was teaching you the, the ability to problem solve? She, she didn't just leave you at home. Um, she taught you certain problem-solving techniques, or do you, do you, remember, do you have any examples? Well, um, so we had a set of rules, of course. Um, I, I, my sister and I both were left home alone when we were very young. Uh, I'm sure CPS would be called now if, if, that, if you, you know, fast-forward it 50 years. But, um, you know, we had a set of rules. We would come home, you lock the door immediately, you know, you do your homework and you take care of the dog and there's a list of things you have to do. But over time, she taught me how to cook, how to operate the laundry, how to, you know, do all of those types of things. So really, we became a help to her. And then you learned how to do multiple things at once. So you could multitask and problem solve in those ways that I I think today for me has been a huge asset because I can not just look at what's in front of me. I can look five steps ahead of me and go, okay, well, we've got food cooking and I got laundry going and I hear the dog. I can actually, I have the bandwidth for all of those things, Hmm. but I learned that at a very young age. That can come in handy with a factory. <laughs> it can come know. in handy, definitely. Our factory, uh, you know, you've been to my, my office, and the most critical thing for me was that I could see everything from my office, and it's completely surrounded by glass, and it's not because I'm in a glass house. It's because if I stand up, I can see every aspect of what's going on. And a big joke at our company is if Deborah stands up, watch out, <laughs> because either she's looking for something or she's coming to do something. And um, we, we, they never know what it's going to be. But sometimes it's just, hey, you're doing a great job, or hey, what are you doing, or I hadn't seen that before, all of those types of things. But it was really important for me to be able to look out my window and see what was going on. Um, I think so many business owners get disconnected from their businesses, and they truly don't understand what's going on. And while I love to say no one works for me, the truth of the matter is everyone works for me. There might be a layer of bosses in between me and you, but I know who you are. I know what your situation is. And if there's ever exceptions, they almost always come through me. And I think that uh, a lot of business owners get disconnected from a lot of that. And I think it's a dangerous thing. Great. So um, you kind of went there naturally, but I wanted to talk about leadership Sounds like you have your own philosophy or style of leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, so how important is leadership in growing a company? Because you grew it from you being the single employee on nights and weekends doing trade shows mm-hmm. to 40 to 50 employees. Mm-hmm. How, how important is the leadership aspect? I think part of being a good leader is understanding your own weaknesses. I think too many business leaders and business owners in particular think that they have to have control over everything. And I've learned over the years that when I relinquish control over items that I don't need to be in control of, the business runs much smoother. But you have to have maturity in yourself with who you are as a person and then also the people that you are part of your team you know, you're not part of my team because I know how to do your job. You're part of my team because I don't want to do your job. You know, there's a big difference there. I can actually do every single job at the company because I have, but that doesn't mean I should be. You know, part of my job is to make sure that we have a vision and a strategy for moving forward and for growth. And if I'm making soap today, the likelihood that I can strategize and, and be a visionary is very, very slim. So you, as a leader, you have to decide what you're going to do and then be okay when other people fail. Because a good leader understands that it's not all about perfection. 
And sometimes it's not even about success, but truly it's about the failing that makes us stronger and that you can learn from. You know, no one really wants to hear about how successful you are. I think that's such a bore. Mm. I want to hear about the worst mistake you ever made. That's what intrigues me because that is the thing that I'll remember. Not that you sold $10 million worth of XYZ. I don't care about that. I want to hear about the truckload of orange juice that somehow was leaking in an 18-wheeler going down the road. Hmm. Did that mean the boxes were screwed up? I mean, what happened there? I mean, because these are things I've seen happen. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not interested in the truckloads of orange juice that got to Walmart on time. I'm interested in that one that was leaking in front of me. <laughs> you know, what can I learn from that? Uh -huh. And those, I think, that's what makes a real leader, I think, is just, you know, get out of your own way and don't be too full of yourself. I want to I stay there. So let's... Can you talk about a mistake that you've made that you've learned a ton from? Care to share? <laughs> well, I think every idea we have we think is a home run, uh, but sometimes they're base hits and sometimes they're strikeouts. I think um, I have had more than one mistake, but I think one mistake that I had early on was saying yes too fast and not understanding the real financial impact of that. When you are, I mean, we are a very streamlined bath company. We make everything for your bath and shower, but we don't do face care. We don't do hair care. We don't do dog care, you know, those types of things. But we did. You know, there was a time when a customer came to me, will you make us some shampoo? Oh, of course I'll make you shampoo. Will you make the, of course I'll do that. I mean, and at some point you get so crazy with so many SKUs that you can't do anything well because you have said yes too quickly and now you don't want to disappoint. So I have a, an incredible disease to please. It is a very bad sickness. Uh, when you have the disease to please, you don't want to say no. And it takes a lot for me to really step back and go, you know what, that product doesn't make sense for us, but here's five other companies that can do that beautifully. And here they are. That takes uh, a lot of discipline, but it also takes, you know, it breaks your heart too. Because you just want to say yes to everybody and make everything that they want. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I think some of the biggest failures and mistakes I've made have come around from the word yes. There's a Russian proverb. Have you heard it? It goes like this. If you chase two rabbits, you'll catch none. <laughs> right. <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> I do believe it. <laughs> You sound like you have a lot of love for your people and that you truly care about your people. Um, yes. That's from previous conversations. Yes. But can you, t can you talk a little bit about that? I don't, and I don't want to imply that. No, I mean, you know, it's really interesting. You, there's, there are several kind of schools of thought of your employees can never be your friends, your employees can never be your family, your employees, you can't care too much about them. And sometimes I go down that road. And say, look, this person is just not doing the job. And if we didn't like the person, we would fire them. So we just need to fire them. And it's difficult because you truly do like them. And one of the things that we are very good at is just making sure that we are hiring the right people that really want to be there, but then making sure that there's enough positive peer pressure that they get corrected by the others. They don't have to be corrected by a boss, and they don't have to be corrected by me. Because if you're being corrected by me, you're doing something way outside the lines. And But we do have a genuine love for people. I mean, God commands us to love one another. That is the greatest commandment, period. And if you cannot learn to overlook the fact that a person wears the same sweats every day, that's your problem, not theirs. You know, you can really start getting very judgmental about people really quickly when they're your employees. But at the same time, it's, I think, inherent upon me to set the tone for how the company is, is. and my husband also. And he's much more gracious and friendly with everybody than I, and he knows everything that's going on with every employee. And, you know, it's... I think it's incumbent upon us to care about the people that work for us. 
some of the people that work for us have no family whatsoever. And just knowing that we care about them, we have a little birthday for them. We still celebrate everyone's birthdays. And, you know, at some point my husband's like, my goodness, we have so many birthdays. I'm like, yeah, it's awesome. I mean, we always have time for cake. You know, really. Life is so short. And I joke a, a lot with the people that work for me. Is You're never going to have a boss that says there's always time for cake. You're just not. Because everybody is like nose to the grindstone, getting stuffed out. We all have deadlines. But when I'm 84 and I look back on my life and certainly my career, I want to be able to have made a difference for somebody. And it's not, man, we could have shipped 10 more bath bombs. That's not the difference. The difference is, gosh, that person forgave my loan that I took out. That person bought me a turkey. I didn't have a turkey. And oh, by the way, they had to buy me a turkey fryer because I didn't have an oven big enough because I live in a fifth wheel. I mean, you know, all of these things. And I believe that when you show that love and that compassion to the people that work for you, it goes into your products. And then before you know it, everyone is feeling that. Everyone is feeling that. And you have some employees who have been with you for a while, I, I suppose? We have um, people that have, I mean, I want to say been there from the beginning. We have quite a few people who have been there, you know, five, six, seven years, eight years. I have two employees that have been employee one, employee two. So we, and we have a, quite a few people that come and go, and it's okay. We don't get mad at people for leaving. Uh, we get mad at people for staying when they should go. But for the most part, it's really about growing people and giving them skill set that they can feel confident leaving. You know, we are a factory. It's blue-collar work. It's hard work. It's shift work. You're standing on your feet all day. It's, it's not glamorous in any way, but it pays the bills, you know? And if, if it's for you, it's for you. And if it's not for you, we know it's not for you. And it's okay. I mean, we, we also have had people leave and come back. Um, and then there's people who leave who want to come back, and they don't get that opportunity. So it's just one of those things. It's The grass is very rarely greener. They have a different lawn service. That's all. Gotcha. <laughs> Let's let's talk about some fundamentals of growing a business. Like, you got to have some principles that, or I would think that you would have maybe eight to ten principles that you stick by, that have been tried and true to keep your business moving in the right direction. Do you have something like that you can share? Well, I don't have any principles, so to so to speak. But what I do have is I have a very good understanding of the marketplace. So one area where we are just heads and shoulders above our competition is that we are in our stores, and we know what's going on at all times. And so many of our competitors try to respond to something, but it's too late. We actually lead the change in a lot of areas. So if we see, for example, that China's coming in with a new product and it's X price, and can we do that? Do we have to respond to that? Um, how can we make sure that our product is better? We always look at pricing. You know, the marketplace always sets the price. However, you can charge more for something that's better quality, always. And it doesn't matter if you're selling middle of the road or not, which is where we are. Um, and we also try to make sure that no matter what we sell, that we're making money on it. You know, one of the basic fundamentals I believe that most business owners don't have is the understanding of fi the financial concepts. And if they just don't understand that it's not just how much does it cost and how much am I selling it for, but how much does it cost, what's my overhead, what's insurance, what's promotion, and oh my goodness, now my cost is double what I thought it was and I'm losing money on every single item. It's you have to have a financial acumen, at least of the basics, to run a business well. For me, I'm very fortunate that my husband is our CFO, and he is a money genius, but he also can do cost modeling for us in a way that we can really understand where we're making money and then exploit those areas. You need to focus always on areas that you can make more money, and it doesn't mean charging more. It means being more efficient in how you manufacture something or buy it, how you purchase it. 
uh, and then making sure that you're not squandering money because a lot of people squander money and they don't realize it, whether it's lost time through their employees, it could be lost time through transit, um, it could be not paying your bills in a way that is you know, giving you extra time. So from all, we really try to look at all of the aspects of every single product to make sure that we're making money on it. And, you know, you can't survive on single-digit profits unless you're a multi-multi-million dollar company. So when you're first starting, you know, you have to have fairly high margins just to survive. Because when the insurance bill is due and when you have to pay for everything in advance because you're small, you know, all that, you know, it hurts. It really does. And when you have to pay for things in advance and it takes 30, 60, 90 days to get here, that hurts. So it's really about understanding every aspect of the, of the money chain. You know, from the time that you have to purchase something to the time you get paid for after selling it. A lot of people don't understand the cost of money. They don't understand if, it, if I give 30-day terms to a customer, what that means. If I give a discount on terms, what that means. So my advice always is to everybody, if you don't understand the numbers, you've got to have someone on your team that does. Because what gets measured gets managed, period. And if you do not know how to measure it, you will never be able to manage it. And if you can't manage it, with your financial acumen, then you need to have somebody who can come to you and say, look, we're running real lean on cash right now. And this is what that means. Okay. Because not every CEO understands numbers. They have a passion, they've got a drive, and they can get people to walk through fire for them. But that doesn't mean they can balance a checkbook. And that's okay. But you have to have somebody who can do that for you. That's good. Let me ask you if challenges are a part of success or challenges a part of success if you're never challenged you'll never succeed and it's very very simple you know iron sharpens iron right and when you're challenged you are forced to think differently to be smarter to be faster and to react in ways that you didn't have to when you didn't have competition or you didn't have challenge. You know, a person who runs alone is never going to be as fast as running with somebody else. And that's fact. It's not a Debraism. You know, if I'm out jogging or walking, I'm going to go a pace that's comfortable for me. But if you saddle up next to me and you're going a little bit faster, I'm naturally going to want to go a little bit faster. And that challenge strengthens you. So it's no different in business as it is with anything in our personal lives. When you are challenged, it forces you to think differently. And thinking differently is what really makes a business grow. You know, when I think about where we are today versus when we started, we don't make a single product today that we made 12 years ago. Not one. <laughs> so you have to change. Constantly. If, and so if you're not changing, you're dying. That's just it. And if you're not growing, you're dying. Even if it's by 1%, someone will say, oh, our sales are flat. Like, are they really flat or did you grow by 1%? Well, 1% is flat. I'm like, 1% isn't flat. 1% 1%. It's not 10, but it's something. So you have to strive to move your business forward and to challenge yourself. Because status quo will never work. Not in the long run. Not yeah. in the long run. Do you have more Debraisms for me? <laughs> I don't have a lot of Debraisms, but I may, my staff might say something else. But um, I do say a lot. Look, if we're not if we're not changing, we're dying, and uh, and it's true, and I believe that because change is critical. I'm a rainmaker. I thrive on change, and if you work for me, you will learn to thrive on change because the world is constantly changing, and adaptation. The first to adapt is the one who survives. And we are, we're in it for the long run. Tell me about some of the changes or challenges that have helped you as a leader or an entrepreneur. What, what, what challenges have really kind of helped you? I think some of the greatest challenges that have helped me come around or have come from personnel changes. You think 
hey, I've hired a, a sales manager, an operations manager, a finance manager, whatever it is. This person is so awesome and they're really going to get us to the next level. And, and I'm really looking forward to working with this person for 10 years. And in two years, they leave. And you're, it, it's so shocking because how can someone who's so equally yoked with you become unequally yoked? And of course, that's a biblical term, but it, it, it's very easy to demonstrate is that if you are saddled up next to someone who can't pull the weight or is pulling you back, that's going to eventually hurt you. And I think a lot of times our personal relationships make us overlook things that we never would advise somebody on. If you were from the outside looking in, you say, okay, this person is is killing your companies. Well, but that person has been with us for five years and they're super sweet and, you know, whatever the, it doesn't matter. You can have internal saboteurs mm. and they don't know that they're sabotaging you and you don't know that they're sabotaging you until they're gone. And then so many other people flourish because that person is gone. And I've had that happen several times throughout the years in ways that have been so profound where I could, you know, talk to somebody and go, okay, this person's not going to be here in a year. They're telling me they're going to be here and that they're in, they're on my team, but I can feel it that they're not. And within a year or two, they're gone. Mm -hmm. So it's really forced me to think no one's in it for the long haul. And I have to be okay with that. You know, I will take you to the season that you're here. And one of my main jobs is to exploit every good quality you have for my benefit. That's it. But I'm going to make you better. And when you leave, you are going to be so much sharper because I challenged you to think differently, to act differently, to be bigger. And a lot of times... People will leave and they'll call me or text me and say, you know, I handled the situation this way because of you. And it's awesome. But so much of it has to do with the people. And that people, a lot, a lot of people are unhappy in their lives. And that unhappiness will eventually come into the workplace. So as a rule, I try not to... Um, deal too much with people's personal problems. It's going to seep in somewhat. But my husband's very famous for saying, look, we all have lives. And all lives are messy. Even the best lives are messy. And they can be a, a huge struggle. You know, you can be going down a wonderful road and all of a sudden a tire's off. And you don't see, you didn't see that coming. And that happens. Life is difficult. Uh, but it's how you handle life's challenges that that's how you persevere. Mm -hmm. You know, people are going to die. People are going to get divorced. You're going to lose a child. You're going to lose a dog. Th th these are things that happen. We're going to lose customers. We're going to have competitors. We're going to have all kind of crazy things happen. And we're like, why did this happen? And it's really just to make us better. And that's every everything I look at. It has to be that way, you know. I cry sometimes, but That's a great there's there, there's no crying in bath bombs. I'm told. <laughs> That's a Jefferism. <laughs> Let me ask you about your roles as a CEO. You talked about being a visionary. Mm -hmm. So, can you tell me about some of the the roles that you carry yourself versus you talked about? some problems you don't have to handle because your culture kind of weeds them out. Mm -hmm. So what are, what are your roles as a CEO of a 50-person company? Well, so I am the chief excitement officer. Okay. That is my title. Um, I'm also the big cheese. And, you know, really the, the vision starts with me, obviously, but it ends with me too. And what I mean by that is, I, if I don't have passion for something or if I don't think something will work, it won't because people will pick up on that. So if I think, Terry, that's an awful idea, guess what? Someone else is going to think it's an awful idea. So it's best if we, you know, we learned that uh, one of, we, we go to a lot of conferences and things like that and 
one of the things we learned was, you know, you need to wow ideas, not how them. And wow, that's an awesome idea. And I'm going to let you just figure it out versus that is a ridiculous idea. How are we going to do that? You can how a company into complete disaster or you can wow it into life. So we have decisions to make every day. Wow, I hadn't thought of it that way. I would love to see the result. Whether it fails or not is irrelevant. But you want to encourage people to think because we do a lot of discouraging. And it really has to do with my role is as the chief excitement officer is to keep people excited. And the only way that we can do that is by giving them an opportunity to wow. And that's not that hard if you get out of the way. Awesome. That's cool. I want to move to some tactical stuff. So I'd like to know what you do for your routines or tactics that you use or habits um, I've heard the saying that uh, you form habits and then habits form you. <laughs> yes. And uh, so what, what habits, do you have any habits? Are you a routined person? I am fairly routined and I am fairly disciplined. However, I'm like a cat with a light. I can easily become distracted by anything blingy. Um, but so I get to the office normally at 630 in the morning and our we start work between 6.30 and 7, so it's uh, the office people don't get there till 8, 8.30. But I try to come in, clean out my inbox, deal with anything that's urgent immediately. So I turn off my phone at 8 o'clock at night, and I don't check my email. I don't check text messages. I don't check anything. My phone is off because otherwise I would check it every five minutes, like everybody does, right? So if you never turn off, you can never turn on. So it's one of those things, it's kind of like a recharging battery. After a while, we've all had those watches. You're like, why won't this watch recharge? Because the battery, can't, it cannot hold any more charge. And that's how our brains are, and that's how our lives are. So I've really, over the years, become very disciplined about turning my phone off at 8. So when I get up at, you know, 5-whatever, um, you know, I check my phone, deal with it, see if anything, like someone called out sick, did anyone die overnight, you know, those type of things. If nothing nothing has happened that is critical, then it can wait till I get to the office. But I do try to have some time every day when I'm researching competitors. So I always know what's going on in the marketplace with new products, with new ingredients, and those types of things. And then I, I do check in with our salespeople, with my sales manager, just to see what's going on in terms of everyday, day-to-day type stuff. And I, whenever I first get into the office, I always walk the factory floor just to see what they did, what they do yesterday. Because everything that we do is made and shipped within a day or two, uh, sometimes three, but not normally beyond that. So I do like to go out and see what they did. And then sometimes I'm like, what the heck did they do? <laughs> but that's very rare. I mean, I can see um, what they've made, what we've shipped, and things like that. So I always check the shipping reports. Uh, if I don't get a shipping report, then the shipping manager gets a nasty gram for me. Where's my shipping report? There's things I like to look at every day. Production report is one which that tells me what we're selling, and the shipping report is another. that tells me what we're shipping out. And then... Um, on Mondays, we kind of have our huddles. We talk about where we're at with sales, what's going on for the week, things like that. The leadership team gets together. So those are kind of my routines. How about personal? What keeps you fueled up? Well, uh, God gives me 25 hours a day, which is a beautiful gift. Mm. Um, he gives me incredibly divine inspiration for products, and so I'm always blessed with that. Um, I exercise a lot. I would love to say, oh, I eat so clean and healthy, but that's a complete lie. I love Oreos. Uh, I love Starbucks, like everybody else. But, you know, I, I am fairly disciplined. My husband and I do work out quite a bit. Runners? He's Yeah, he's a runner, and I'm not running anymore, but I spend, I'm still very, very active. And so we just really try to make sure that we stay healthy because we both – seen our aging parents and things like that you know the body was made to move that's just the bottom line so we got to keep it moving 
So we're pretty disciplined about that, and I don't eat after 7 o'clock. That's my, my big thing. I heard a quote. Um, you talked about creativity. And the quote goes, uh, you're most like God when you're creating. And I don't know if that's true, but it sure sounds. Doesn't that sound awesome? It sounds pretty neat. You know, when I think of, I mean, whenever I look at the moon or I look at the stars or I just look at the sunset and you think, wow, I mean, he made it all. It's pretty incredible. Hmm. And then sometimes I think, man, Mary held Jesus in her arms and she didn't even know it was God. Hmm. And she kissed him and everything else. I mean, and that's so cool. I mean, you know what? It's like, whoa. So, many so I know it's it's really really cool. But I feel I'm really lucky that um, and blessed that I'm very creative. I'm like the MacGyver of crafts. Mm. <laughs> I can make anything out of anything. So I'm pretty blessed in that way. What advice would you give to somebody who's thinking about starting a business or has recently started one? Just some general advice. Um, it's hard. And uh, compared to, it's just I think it's hard compared to anything else because it's you, and everything you do you want to take personally and you can't and you shouldn't. So that's my first advice: don't take anything personal because you're not that awesome, and it's way bigger than you. Uh, And that only took me fifty years to figure out. So that is my first advice. The second advice: really keep your day job if you can or some type of income source. It takes a tremendous amount of resources to build any business. And a lot of people think, well, it's a service, or it's this, or it's that, and I really don't need the, the money. It always takes money, whether you're giving those services away at first. Okay, well, now you're not getting paid, so that takes money. Some other income source has to come to fuel that. And, uh, you know, it's it's there's no crime in working while figuring out what you're going to do with your company. And it's also okay to have a hobby that you get paid to do. Some people think, well, this is more of a hobby. I'm not sure if it's going to be a company. I said, there is no reason on earth that you can't get paid well for a hobby. Ask a hunting guide or ask a fishing guide or ask the guy, the spin instructor, you know, he was selling insurance, and now he's a spin instructor. It started out as a hobby, and then it becomes a thing that sustains you. So, you know, have an outlook of um, just gratitude for whatever comes to you. You never know what door will open or close, but you have to be prepared for it. You know, and luck always favors the prepared isn't that true? That and so does opportunity. Opportunity always favors the prepared. So you have to always be thinking about, if I get this big order from the Bellagio, what am I going to do? If I get this big order from you know, Kroger, what am I going to do? Or HEB. Or pick a company who you want to work with. You know, What are you going to do? You have to write out on paper... It's step one, two, three through 10 or 20, or sometimes there's 50 steps. And it's okay to not know all the answers, but you know someone who does. And a big, big mistake that I see people make is they have such an ego that they will not humble themselves to ask for help. And then they're drowning in this just crazy sea of what eventually will become failure. Mm. And then they become so, uh, they ostracize themselves from everyone because they failed. It's like, whoa, even Jesus died on a cross. Asking for help is pretty important. Yeah. Mm. I mean, you know, you've got to, to really think about every single thing that happens. And, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen? Are you going to die? Okay, well, if you're not going to die, then everything else is completely manageable. You know, I, th- I think when you look at the most important kind of things that happen in life, we look back on them in 10 years and go, oh, my gosh, that was really not that big of a deal because that was preparing me for something way bigger, way bigger. Good perspective. Mm-hmm. You talked a little bit about your mission earlier, but I wanted to save that towards the end. 
Do you want to talk more about that? Like your personal mission and your company's mission, are they one and the same? Can you shed some more light on that? Yeah, I mean, I I believe that our our why is creating jobs 100%. And I never wanted to have an employee. That was just something that was I was not interested in. And the the more successful we are, of course, the more employees we have, but I believe that we're really blessed in this way to provide opportunities for people. Um, you know, we have people that work for us coming out of out of prison, and people don't hire felons. It's just the Ouch. fact. Yeah. And, you know, you want someone to be able to get an apartment and get in a car and have a life, but you won't give them a job. So I really think it's incumbent upon me to make sure that we overlook, I think, some of the stigmatisms that come with mistakes. A lot of people are probably one bad decision away from prison. They just don't know it. And I think what I've discovered, because some of my most amazing and valuable employees are those who have transitioned, you know, out of prison and are just great employees. You know, they're so thankful for the chance. And um, I think the real mission is, is you know, I say we're the home of the second chance, but we're really the home of the third, fourth, or fifth chance <laughs> because it's really easy to have a set of rules that apply for some people and not for others. But when you kind of open your your eyes to all that hurt, it's much different. You know, you can be on one side. It's really easy to say, oh, that guy deserves what he got and, you know, three strikes and let's throw away the key and all. It's like, okay, but wait, that's someone's father. And now that child is not going to have a father around and our families need fathers or mothers or, you know, pick a person. So it's really just about, I think, being bigger than what the world says you should be. And not that I'm righteous, because I believe me, I'm not. But I believe that God has given me the talent and the treasure to help the least of these. Awesome mission. You know? Because if, if not us, then who? Another guy? So I can have a fancier car? I don't need it. <laughs> you know? I, I think it's just uh, it's just a different... It's just a different calling, I think. I think people's one of their greatest desires is to feel useful. Mm -hmm. The Bible also says a man that doesn't work doesn't eat. That's right. So you're helping out with that one of those greatest desires of mankind. Um, how do you continue to grow as a person? Because you talked about the need for change and the need to overcome competition. And I'm, I'm sure that stems from you personally, but maybe not. But how do you continue to grow as a leader, personally? Um, I think that I personally continue to grow. I mean, I read a lot. So my goal is I try to read two books a month, sometimes more. And I read a ton of magazines, a ton of articles online. But I'm constantly looking at ways to grow. And, you know, one of the things I get super frustrated about is that my husband doesn't do that. You know, I just, I, I would go to a workshop on my purpose. You know, I'm like, I would love for you to go to this with me. He's like, yeah, I'm not interested in that. And I get upset with him. I'm like, wait, but this is my thing and not his. So I'm constantly going to workshops or reading because I do want to grow. I constantly want to just challenge my mind to, to different things. If you would have asked me five years ago, if I would attend a fundraising event to help felons transition from jail to work and to provide housing for them and clothing for them and food for them. I, you could not, I would not have ever fathomed that I would do such a thing. But now it's like, well, of course I would do that. Of course I'm going to help them do that. So I think that you have to be in situations that force you to grow and to look at things differently. And it all really started probably with that particular ministry with PEP, the Prison Entrepreneur Program. I met a gentleman at church, he's maybe 
early 60s, super nice guy. And we were talking one day and he's like, yeah, I work, you know, for, for Pep. And I'm like, what, what is it? And so he was telling me, he's like, yeah, he said, I was in prison. I said, I'm sorry, what? Mm. He's like, yeah, I drank too much at a, at a Christmas party for a big company that I worked at and I killed someone. He said, so I deserved what I got because the other person didn't deserve it. And, but he just said how it changed his life and how you can make a bad decision and it changes your life, your family's life, everyone around you. And then talking with him and we would go to the prison and, and teach them entrepreneurial skills. And I said, you know, whether you're dealing drugs or bath bombs, if you know how to deal with drugs, then you know how to deal bath bombs. It's all about supply chain. It's about marketing. It's about sales. And you should see their li- eyes light up. I mean, it's the truth. If you can sell anything, I don't care if it's a gun or a bar of soap, you can bridge that gap. That's neat. <laughs> you Pretty can cool. really bridge that gap. So you read a lot. Can you, give me, can you give us some good book recommendations, maybe for somebody who wants to start a business or who wants to become a leader? What would be your um, Well, the number one book I would always read for everybody, and it's a very old book, and it's called Who Moved My Cheese? Okay. And it's about when things blow up because you're going down a road and you think, wow, this is fantastic, and then oh, I'm laid off. Or, oh, my God, I just lost my biggest customer. Or my factory burned down. I mean, there are so many things, but how do you deal with it? So it's Who Moved My Cheese? I can't think of the author. Um I also always recommend um, From Good to Great. That's a very, very good book. And Freakonomics is another good book. But I also encourage people just to read, not just business books, but any kind of book that you, and not on your phone, but a real book, and how, how changed you'll be because you don't want to put it down. Right now I'm reading the book by Case Keenum about more than the game, okay. you know, how God changed his life. And obviously he's a very famous football player. Um, but, you know, just reading about people's lives, how they made mistakes, how they transitioned, you know, from a third string quarterback to a starting quarterback who wins the game on Monday night. I mean, whatever it happens to be. But just reading, I think, really opens your mind to things. And it could be reading anything. I get the craziest ideas from reading and things of no consequence. Outside magazine. <laughs> you know, it's just very strange. How about people you follow? Creatives and maybe people that we would know? Do you follow any industry leaders? Um, you know, I fall in and out of love with that. And it's only because um, I just don't have a lot of time to follow people. Like, I can barely follow my own thoughts most of the time. But occasionally, I mean... I like real life people like sometimes the president, see what he's doing. You know, you could follow him on Twitter. It's pretty easy. Um, I love athletes of all kinds. Um, I sometimes will, if I'm reading a certain author, maybe it's Terry Blackstocker. I mean, she's a Christian writer who does murder mysteries. Hmm. Uh, I'll check in and see what's going on with her. Is she writing any new books? And But for the most part, I really I will look on Facebook or Instagram. I'm, a, I'm very visual, so I look at pictures and quickly. And uh, I'll just see what's going on. But not really into all of that so much. Do you, do you encourage other women to, to move into leadership or entrepreneurship roles? I encourage all people okay. to, uh, to be leaders, whether they're women or men or in between. Um, Equal opportunities. That's right. Because, you know, the one thing that my dad taught me was, and it sounds sexist, but it, it's, it's insanely valuable, and that is to think like a man. Because men are less emotional. They usually don't make decisions business-wise based on emotions. They're very driven by facts and data and analytics. And when you say think like a man, it's like I'm not saying be like a man saying take the the thing that God made us, which is emotional beings. Women are very compassionate and we're very sensitive. And But if you take away some of those layers and you get down to the data drive, you will naturally start being in sync with the men around you. 
And that's what makes you a good leader. Not that you are a woman or a man, but you can be in sync with a woman or a man. So that's what's very, very important, I think. How do men relate to women then? How do we, you, you have to be more sympathetic, okay. empathetic, okay. compassionate. And that's what I tell the guys in our groups. Like, look, you have to realize if you see someone who's struggling, you don't go get back to work. What's going on? Is everything okay? And, you know, and you don't have time for that. But it doesn't matter. That 10 minutes or 15 minutes will be huge. And it could lead to something bigger. Like, we just had a situation where a young woman at our company was having a problem with her son. And she didn't want everyone in the company to know about it. But she needed to tell somebody because we can see that something's going on. So either, A, I think you have really just fallen off the quality wagon and you don't care about your work. Or there's something going on and I need to be give you a little bit of latitude. So it's up to, to, the, to the male leaders in our group to be able to go, hey, there's something going on over there because I see that something's not right. So, yes, we definitely have that. The conversation goes both ways. And you coach your male employees on how to do that? Yes. But really, my husband's very good at that because he has an insanely sensitive uh, gun. <laughs> He's just got this you know, sensitivity gun that he can pick up when people aren't right. So usually God gives me like these weird dreams about people if, if something's going on with them and I can t- find out. But he can just tell by someone's eyes if there's something wrong. Interesting. It's very cool. I'll be like, hey, what's going on with so-and-so? He's like, let me go see. <laughs> is, he a, is he a people whisperer? He is. He's fantastic. He's very, very good uh, with everybody, actually. He's very good. Do you have a position or an opinion on whether it's harder to lead or start a business for women than it is for men? Uh, you know, I... Because you've been in the arena. I have Not only have I been in the arena, I was in a male-dominated field before I was ever in this arena. And I believe you are the person you are. So whether you're male or female is irrelevant. But how do you project yourself? How do you, first of all, I don't want to buy from a mousy man. I don't want to buy, buy from a mousy woman either. So I'm an equal opportunity, non-mousy person. So how you project yourself and how you um, communicate, how you articulate your ideas, that's more important to me than your sex. And I do believe right now there seems to be a struggle women find that they're struggling. However, I have not ever personally struggled with that myself. And it's probably because no matter what situation I'm in, I really just try to own it and be there. Now, have I felt less? Have I felt second class? Have I felt outsexed? I would say yes to all of those things. But I didn't let it show. And I just said... How am I going to be better? The one thing my mom taught me when I was very, very young, you stun them with looks and you kill them with brains. And I tell every girl I meet that, no matter how old she is, because your looks should not be the driving factor for anything. You want your brains really to be. So how do you make that happen? You come across as if you are put together, and then you make sure that you can articulate your ideas and yourself in a way that they look past everything else. Because it doesn't matter what you look like. Your mom sounds like a smart lady. <laughs> she's, she's what we call street smart. <laughs> what, I'm just curious. What, what did she do? How did she take My care of My mom is, she works for me. Oh, wow. uh, okay. Yeah, she's worked for me for, I mean, since... By probably 10 years, 10 years she's worked for me. Uh, but she was a bookkeeper. She was a flight line plan runner um, at Lockheed for years. But, you know, she just did whatever it took to put food on the table. She had a full-time job. She would clean houses and, and things like that on the side, and we would help her do that. And that's why I don't clean my own house. I'm fairly certain of that. Um, but, you know, all of these things, she just would make it happen. It was 
I mean, that's just how we grew up. You make it happen. Sounds like a good example. Yeah. What else? Did we miss anything? This is my last question. What else? Did we miss anything from 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 our interview? What would you advise, or what what words of wisdom do you have? To... Um, I I think the words of wisdom are you know, get a good accountant, get a good lawyer, um, and make sure that even when you get knocked down, you get back up. You know, s- stay in the word. Keep your you know God. He is just, and his promises are there. And when things are tough, it is really hard. Because you say, God, why are you doing this? But he's not doing it. He's sharpening me. And we joke a lot sometimes at work, say, stand back. I'm being sharpened right now (laughs) because the wheels are about to fall off on this thing. But it's really about just having the faith and the belief in yourself that it can happen. But you also have to be real. I mean, does the world need another salsa? I'm not sure. Does it need another bath bomb? I'm not sure. But I know that no matter what I'm doing, my path will be straight if I follow God. So don't be afraid to lead with your faith. We start every meeting at our company with a prayer. We pray over things in our stores. We are very faithful. And if you don't like that, you are going to have a problem. And I'm not forcing you to stay. But I'm not going to give up my faith on God or my profession of my faith because it makes you uncomfortable. And as a private employer, I can do that. You know, we hire all kind of people. And some people have never heard the word of the Lord. And some people have never seen true servant leaders, people who just are there to serve. You know, I would love to say, man, I'm just in this business to get rich. But that is not true. You know, it's way bigger than that. The money will come or not. I'm not sure. But I do know that I'm here to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. Period. So if you lead that way, another great book is Entree Leadership by Dave Ramsey. And that is serve first with a, you know, a, a humble giving heart and be shocked at the success that follows that, you know? Awesome. And that's, uh, just, you know, stay the course because I will tell you that if it were that easy, everyone would do it. And there's a real reason why other people just work for other people because it's really hard. It is really hard, but it's super rewarding when it works. It really is. Well, awesome. Thank you. That's a great uh, note to end on. Thank you very much for taking Thank time you. to I teach us and, it. And, and help Bell Institute. Thank you. I Thank appreciate you. it. All right. Our mission for this podcast is to bring you stories about veterans, entrepreneurs, and leaders who are doing fascinating things with their lives. Our hope is to inspire you because we believe that inspired individuals will change lives, both theirs and others for the good. Bell Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we're asking for your support. There are two ways to do that. One, by getting involved with our mission, and two, by contributing financially. Please visit bellinstitute.org. That's V-E-L institute.org to help us make an impact.